Ecclesiastes. Um, this message I've been putting off, but to do justice to this book, I had to hit it. So I didn't really want to, I didn't really want to. And finally, I just decided, all right, I need to do it. Because if you've read any kind of Ecclesiastes at all, there is one looming dark shadow that appears over and over and over and over and over again. And it is the enigma. I think that's what vanity actually means in the Hebrew. It is the enigma of the book of Hebrews, so, or Hebrews, of Ecclesiastes. So look at chapter three, verse 19. See if you can figure out what the topic just may be. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all his vanity. All go to one place. All are from dust and to dust all return. Verse 21, who knows? whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Chapter five, verse 15. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Chapter six, verse 12. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Chapter seven, verse two. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Chapter eight, verse seven. For he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. Chapter nine, verse one. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all since the same happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and to the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that's done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing and they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever they have no more share in all that's done under the sun. Can you guess what we're going to talk about? Right? It's just boom, 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 boom. If you read Ecclesiastes, the big enigma is we die. We die. And if you're new to Ecclesiastes, this book is real simple. 
the author is looking at life as if there is no God. And he's poking and he's probing and he's asking these questions about everything. And the big one that is a theme through it all is, what about death? What happens when you die? And his view is an agnostic viewpoint, which means this, I don't know. Right? Chapter three, verse 21. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes up and the spirit of the beast goes down? Who knows that? Who knows if there's anything after this life? Have you ever thought that or asked that question? I sure have. I've asked it a couple times watching a two-foot coffin being lowered into the ground. Really? Right? Who knows whether the spirit of man goes up and the spirit of the beast goes down? Who knows these things? So my hope in this message when we talk about death is that we get something from our understanding of death that actually applies to this life. Because your understanding of what happens to you after this life will have repercussions, will echo back into how you actually live your life. And I'll give you the best example I have. I recommend this book. Um, if you look at top 10 most influential books of the 20th century, this is always on it. It's Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Brilliant. A book that prayerfully will never be able to be written again because he wrote it in response to him being put into a death camp in World War II. And he's a psychiatrist that while he's there, he analyzes people. And what he notices is there are four kinds of people that emerge in these death camps. And there are number one, people that jumped in with the enemy. So they did whatever, they were called capos. They actually carried out the real evil, dirty work that the Nazis wanted. It was Jews against Jews. Brutal. They just jumped in, did whatever they could to survive and get ahead. That was number one. Number two, people that he said, they dried up. They got in there, they saw the horror of it all. They saw these events and it took from them their spirit and they just died. And he gives this example of a guy who believed they were gonna be set free on March 30th. And he was alive and strong and vibrant. March 30th came and went and there was no rescue. And the next day he got sick and died. That somehow this hope that he had when it did not manifest, it tore from him the will to live. He just dried up. The third were people he called, they, they flamed out. They had this passion for when I get out of these death camps, they held on to this hope. I'll get my family back. I'll get my wealth back. I'll get my position back. They held on to this dream out there. And then they got out and Victor Frankl stayed in contact with them. And what he found was this, life didn't actually match what he thought. And they ended up becoming depressed and suicidal because they didn't meet it. But then there was a group that he called the people that rose up. They became the heroes, the leaders. They became the ones that sacrificed for others. They became the ones that everyone else put their hope in because they had some kind of a medal. And he's very famous for this saying. It says this, this is his most famous saying, quote, if life only has meaning, or excuse me, life only has meaning if you have a hope and a meaning that suffering and even death cannot destroy. 
that the only way that you're gonna get meaning from this life is if there's something that transcends the here and now. Victor Frankl, meaning of life, brilliant. And we have examples of that. Examples throughout history where people have had that kind of medal where you're like, how'd you face death like that? I'll give you one. It's this from the book. It's called The Missionary Reminiscence and it's from Jamaica 200 years ago. And what happened there was there was this plantation and there were slaves that were getting together and they were starting a prayer group and starting to study the Bible. And the masters of that plantation did not like it. So they began to forbid them. You may not meet, you can't study, you can't pray, you can't do this stuff, but they kept doing it. So there was a day when all the slaves from this plantation were called in and they're gathered around and the masters took the head of David, one of the slaves and put it on a post. And they asked the slaves, do you know why this man was killed? And they called up Moses Hall, who was the leader of them. Come up here. Do you know why David's killed? And he said, yeah, because he prayed. That's right. And this is a quote from that book. Quote, mind from this time, let us have no more of your prayer meetings. For if we catch you at it, we shall serve you as we've served David. You better take warning. I, all of ye, whoever we catch at such things, again, it matters not who it is, will serve you all alike. Do you hear that? Moses did hear it. Indeed, his whole soul quivered with excitement at every syllable. What could he do? To bow in calm submission was equal to a sacrifice of his principles and a denial of his Lord. So suddenly, raising and clasping his hands, he kneeled down upon the earth and immediately beneath the martyr's head, saying in a solemn voice, let us pray. And pray he did. And all the others joined him and they prayed for the murderer's salvation. End quote. How do you rise up like that? By the way, those murderers were so freaked out by that, they took off running. How do you rise up like that? How do you have a hope that even in the face of death or death camps, how how do you rise up and become a Moses Hall? That's what I hope to give us, that kind of a hope, right? So I'm gonna give to you the two narratives that there are. There's really two narratives on death. Ecclesiastes is poking at the first narrative. It's called naturalism. And Ecclesiastes is written from a naturalistic viewpoint. It's a guy saying, okay, let's imagine there is no God. Let's look at everything. What has meaning? What has value? So that's Ecclesiastes. So naturalism is the idea that you and I, that everything that we see came about with no God. In fact, it even goes further than that. Naturalism actually says death is our creator, right? That you and I are alive because of billions and billions of deaths that go back millions of years. And it's subsequent, every death, every death built a little bit better fertilizer so that you and I now exist, Death just makes better fertilizer. It is our creator. It is our maker, right? Death just makes good fertilizer. Imagine a Hallmark card like that. How awesome would that be, right? He is really good fertilizer, so that's death's our maker. Substant death after death after death, that, that, that this all came about that way. And because of that, there are some really impacting thinkers 
in the 20th century. Albert Camus and John Paul Sartre, who said this. Now, if that is true, death is the end, there is no God, we're just better fertilizer, then nothing matters. Like, morals are relative. What you do or what you don't do has zero meaning in life, right? So put it this way. It doesn't matter if you kiss a child or you hit a child. What well, does that child? Yeah, but they die. Well, they have kids and it affects them. No, but they die. But they have kids. No, but they die, right? They just keep going out and eventually everybody dies. So it doesn't matter what you do, which is exactly what Solomon says 3,000 years before. So look at verse four again of chapter nine. It's amazing. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Please remember this about scripture. Scripture is concentrated. They didn't have Google or uh, Google Drive where they could just record every word. Everything had to be very specific and tight. The metaphor he's given is this, and I'll try to bring it to modern day. Living dog, better than a dead lion. If you go to the zoo, what do you wanna see? Do you wanna see a golden lab? Oh, look at that, everybody come to the golden lab. No, what do you wanna see? A lion, right? Like even today we know, like dogs are great, whatever, they're awesome, but lions, yeah. Okay, well take that back 3,000 years. A dog 3,000 years ago was a scourge. If you want to insult somebody, you would call them a dog. We still do that today. They were cannibalistic, they were scavengers, they would steal, they would bite, they were nasty, nasty creatures, right? But a lion, even the ancients held lions up. Lions are noble and courageous and great. What Psalm is saying is this, According to naturalism, it's better to be a dirty, rotten, thieving scoundrel and be alive than to be a noble, courageous, great human who's dead. That's what he's saying. Exactly like Sartre and Camus. Just years and years and years and years and years ago. And he actually explains it if you read the rest of this. You know, hate, love, all that, that stuff. He's actually explaining what he means, right? That's crazy, isn't it? But here's what I would say. No one actually believes that. No one believes that everything you do doesn't matter. No one believes it doesn't matter if you hit a child or kiss a child, do we? No one believes that. I have had the privilege of sitting with people at their last days, agnostics, believers, atheists, and asking them questions and listening. I have never had someone say, you know, it didn't matter. Didn't matter how I raised my kids. Didn't matter how I love my spouse, didn't matter. All of them say, I was a good dad. I tried my best. I was a good husband. I was a good wife. All of them say that. No one actually believes this because intrinsically we know no, that's not true, right? Here's the second thing that I think always tells us naturalism is not right. And it's this, like um, if death was so natural, why do we fight it so hard? Why are we always trying to un, uh, outrun death if death is just natural and it brings about, if it was truly, this evolution was the only way we got here, we should have been involved to know, hey, after I finish reproducing, I should just become better fertilizer. It should be a real natural, like, oh yeah, no, it's good, I'm gone. But it's not, right? Dylan Thomas has the best poem on this. He says this, quote, do not go gently into that good night. Rage, rage, rage against the dying 
of the light. That's every person, right, when it comes to death because we know it's not natural. And here's how we know that. Here's how we know that. I wanna give you the biblical view of death. And so for a moment, unhook yourself from Webster's dictionary version, which is death is your pulse stops and you stop breathing, right? That's what we believe about death now. Your pulse stops, you stop breathing, we put you in a box, paint you up like a clown and plant you in the ground, okay? That's de- but that's not the Bible's version. So turn with me now to Genesis chapter two, where you see the very first mention of death. Whenever you wanna know the truth about a subject from a biblical viewpoint, the first place to start is where's it first talked about? Because the authors of the Bible knew the Bible and they would use the definitions of the Bible. So Genesis chapter two. Verse seven. Then Yahweh God formed the man of dust from the ground. Remember the backdrop to this is God creating the animals. He creates them by simply saying lion, tiger, right? Sasquatch, whatever it is. Just, they're done. It's not work, he's not. But when it comes to humans, you and me, what does he do? He gets his hands dirty. He forms the man out of the dirt of the ground and then breathed, ruached into his nostrils from the ruach of life. And the man became a living nefesh, literally living soul in the Hebrew, right? That's a whole different creation there. So it's dirt plus divine equals a living soul, right? But if you read the Matt Heverly version of the Bible, I say it's dirt plus divine equals a a divine dirt bag. That's actually what we are as humans, (laughs) right? So this is different. This is unique, right? It's not an antelope. It's immaterial and material. It's heaven and it's earth, right? It's why we fight it. To this day, we know we're not like the animal kingdom. We know that. I'll prove it to you. You ever go to wildlife safari? You ever drive by the lions? What do the lions always do out there? Are they doing yoga? Are they doing Pilates? They doing the 80 day challenge for a beach body? No, they sleep, right? Like you're banging on your windows and yelling at screaming because you want them to do something. Get up. Why? Because they're not worried about death. All their needs are taken care of. It's why zoo animals are always unhealthy because their food has been taken care of and they don't have the normal drive. You and I have this drive in us, this echo of Eden that we are created to live and not to die. And so we just try to run from death, Pilates and whatever it is, whatever is hip today, right? So you see that divine, we're different. And then it goes on, here's death. Verse 15, Yahweh God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Just goodness there. I've created all this, enjoy it. No taboos, no, go. One rule, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day, very important, that you eat, you shall surely die. First mention of death. 
Adam knows what it is somehow, which is a fascinating conversation. You shall surely die. You know the story, Genesis chapter three. What do they do? They take the forbidden fruit and they eat it. What happens to them that day? Pole stop, breath stop? No, right? They don't, it's not a poisonous apple or a poisonous fruit that they fall over and die, right? They live long lives. They have kids, grandkids, great-grandkids. They build cities. They live a long, long time. And then they quote Webster Dictionary, die. What happens on the day they eat it? Two things. They're taken out of the good place God had created for them, separated from paradise, and then separated from God's presence. Death in the Bible is separation. That is a biblical definition of death. It is separation. Now there's different kinds of separation, but if you keep tracking through what the Bible says, it keeps that very consistently. Jesus, when he talks about death, it's Luke chapter 12. He says, don't fear the guy that can kill your body. Fear the one that if the body is dead, can decide what to do with the soul. That there's some kind of separation there, right? The body's gone, but this immaterial part still exists, separation. You can look at 2 Corinthians 5.8. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What does that mean? Well, you're, you're separated from your body, the immaterial part of you, or the, the material part of you is now separated from the material, immaterial, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. The, the outer man, the outer being, Man, it's starting to decay and go south, but the inward is getting stronger and stronger, right? That, that there's, this, there's, there's these two parts of us and one day they'll get separated. I can keep going, Philippians chapter one, Ephesians chapter two, verse one, that death, the, the biblical definition of separation. Now there's different ones and I don't have time for it, but it's separation. That is the core definition of death, right? So you start reading the New Testament, here's what you find. There is a cataclysmic change from Ecclesiastes, naturalism, or even the Old Testament on what death means now. And it's best summed up in one verse. It's, a, it's Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. And I don't know what you think about Revelation. I love the book. And it doesn't matter how you interpret it. Revelation is ultimately written to people that are gonna go through the death camps. And so how do you survive the death camp? How do you, do you survive very hard, very difficult things? What is going to help you through that? How are you gonna rise up in the death camp? So Revelation 12, 11 says this. They overcame Satan, evil. They overcame by the word of their testimony, by the blood of the lamb, and they loved not their lives even unto death. That somehow this thing that people normally outrun and feared and it was the great evil, the enigma of Ecclesiastes, somehow at the end of the Bible, it has been so changed that, hey, no problem, man. No problem. That death no longer has this power over people. So what happened? Because if you read Christian history and, oh, I so recommend it. Like I'm loving Christian history more and more the older I get. You read about these heroes, these martyrs that did exactly Revelation 12, 11. Brilliantly, I'll give you one example. It's one of my favorites. It's John Harper. So John Harper was a Scottish preacher who took over the Paisley Street 
church, Baptist church in Glasgow, Scotland. Brilliant man. That church went from 25 to 500 overnight, just blew up. Then a plague hits, his wife and his children, all except for his six-year-old died. So he decides to take a break and he wants to go visit his sister who lives in the United States. So he gets on a modern marvel of technology, a ship like no other ship, a ship that icebergs could not sink. Guess what he got on? The Titanic. So he goes, he dies, but his six-year-old is saved, right? Four years after that, in a little meeting in Hamilton, Canada, where people are praying and giving their testimony, a young Scot stands up and says, I am a survivor of the Titanic and I am the last convert of John Harper. I said, what? How'd that happen? They said, we're in the water and it's cold and it's freezing. And I'm thinking I'm gonna die when all of a sudden John Harper, a wave brought him over to me and he came close to me and he said, son, are you saved? And this young man said, no, I'm not. And so a wave took John Harper away. And a couple minutes later, another wave brought John Harper close again. And he said, son, are you saved now? You've had time to think about it. (laughs) And the young man said, no. So John Harper took off his life preserver and threw it to this young man and said, then you need this more than me and swam off. Naturalism would say, stupid. Better to be a thieving dog. Do we believe that? I certainly hope not. Because I say he's a hero because they understood something, that death has been changed, that they overcame because they love not their lives even unto death. So what helps you and me to have that same thing? What helps us to rise up like a Moses Hall when people at work are saying things or you know that's wrong? What helps us to rise up, not to jump in or cave in or dry up? What's gonna help us? I think there's a ton, I'll give you two. Number one, you have to know your savior's work when it comes to death. So quickly, I'm almost done. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is the definitive text on the resurrection. Verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? Right? They're decomposed in the ground. What in the world? How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that's to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed, its own body. Verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is imperishable. What is raised is What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. There's this idea. Death says, look out, it's the executioner. It ends everything right there. But the New Testament says this, "Uh uh-uh. Death is no longer the executioner. Because of the work of Jesus, death is simply the gardener that it plants us, this life is a seed and we get planted and we come back something crazily different and better. 
right? Like what's better, a redwood seed or a redwood tree? Anyone drive down to Stout Grove to see a bunch of redwood seeds? Mm -mm. Man, those trees are, that's it. C.S. Lewis commenting on this said, if we could see ourselves and what we're to become, we'd wanna worship ourselves as gods. That we have no idea what's coming for us. It's brilliant that this is the winter season right now and spring's coming and it's gonna be brilliant. Well, how'd that happen? Skip down a couple verses, verse 54. When perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that's written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Something happened that the sting of death is gone. Now, what happened? I think there's great pictures. Let me just quote one verse for you because I think it sums it up. It's Genesis 3.15. Right after the death happens, you guys have eaten this, separation happens, good news. Good news, Adam and Eve. The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head, but he will bruise his heel. What's the one weapon of a serpent? What's the one sting of a serpent? It bites you. It bites you. This text is saying that sting, it's totally referring to Genesis 3.15. The sting that the serpent has is sin. The way that death separates you and me and from God is sin. But Jesus Christ absorbed all the venom of the enemy that you and I deserve. He absorbed it into himself so that there's no more death. There's no more separation. That now we can come close. Now we can be part. Now we can be with him. Man, you'll rise up. It doesn't matter what people think or what they say. You can rise up. There's no accusation against me. It's Romans 8, 35. We are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things seen, nor things unseen, nor heights, nor depths. Any created thing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. That thing of separation that used to distance you from God is gone. All the venom absorbed by Jesus Christ. You don't have to fear it anymore. That's why the New Testament says this. We have not been given a spirit of fear, but of love and power and soundness of mind. That's how you become Moses Hall. Now you're not gonna tell me what to do. No way, no way. And the second thing, not just knowing what the savior did for you, number, number two, knowing the saint's home. I don't think there's a single memorial service I've done in the last five years where I haven't referenced Revelation 21 because I think it's that good. It's where you and I are, it's our destiny. Right? We lost the destiny, which was Eden through Adam. But we gained a new destiny through Jesus, which is New Jerusalem. And it's better because people are there. And it says it's about that. Read it, it's so good. Right? There's no more death, there's no more sickness, but I love this the best. It says there's no more night. What does night do? If you read Genesis 1, it actually separates. It still does that. So imagine 
you have the best day ever. You're over at the coast, you attempted to surf if you're like me, you went fishing, maybe you caught some fish, maybe you didn't. You're eating some good fish if you did. You're just having a great day. Sun, warm, you know, brilliant day. And then it starts getting dark. And what do you have to say to all your friends? Goodbye. It separates you, right? You gotta go back. There's none of that anymore. There's no more separation. But also, what what does night do to you? You ever been afraid of something at night that you normally would not be afraid of? Right, because it's dark. Darkness, it it causes fear. Here's my best example. This was about uh, six, seven years ago. Uh, There was a mountain lion creeping around. Everybody had pictures of it, like people were catching shots of it. And so everyone's a little bit wary about a mountain lion. And I was walking a quarter mile from my father-in-law's house home. And it was a pitch black day, night. (laughs) Third service, there you have it. It was a pitch black night. And my daughters, because of the mountain lion, were like, they were just clinging to me, which I loved. So I'm walking with them and, and being the tough guy. When we get up close to my house, something erupted right at my feet, just explodes. And I tell you, they were screaming like if the ducks had won a football game, just like, ah, you know, just like, ah, guess what it was? It was a rabbit. <laughs> I have never in the daylight seen a rabbit and be like, ah, rabbit. <laughs> but night makes fear. It makes fear. So what the Bible is saying is this, listen, listen, believer, listen. This is a seed and one day it gets planted and what you come, become is so brilliant, so brilliant that you can be a Moses Hall, that you can be a John Harper, that you can be a Max Colby. You wanna read an incredible story of a martyr, read Max Colby, phenomenal. Jim Elliott, right? That's how, that's how. And know this. This is simply page one. This life is page one. That's all it is. And the story just gets better and better and better. I'm not saying this life is bad. I love this life. But Proverbs 4.18 says this. The path of the righteous grows brighter and brighter until that day. That we go from glory to greater glory. And the greatest glory ever is Revelation 21. When we are reunited with our creator in a paradise that we cannot imagine with jobs and opportunities that will blow our minds beings that are no longer perishing but perfected that's coming for us no fear and we come and we eat and part of communion not just remembering what jesus did for us part of communion is celebrating that after three days he's alive And the New Testament says this, he was the first fruits of the resurrection. That you can bank on your own resurrection because Jesus is alive. Because he defeated death. He took the sting, he took the venom, and it's gone. And so Jesus today, as we come to these tables, as we eat, as we drink, as we take the broken bread and we take the cup, I pray for any in here here who may be going through a valley of a shadow of that enemy of death. I pray that you would be with them. I pray that you would comfort them and guide them. I pray that for the things that cause us to be fearful, sickness, finances, 
humiliation, being put on the spot for our faith. I pray that all those things would shrink away and that you would give us spirits of love and power and soundness of mind because we know death has been defeated and our destiny is secure. Give us that anchor of hope, I ask this day. May we eat and drink of that so we can go back into homes and into workplaces and into neighborhoods, rising up to whatever challenge comes. And I ask this in your name, amen.